Father, thank you so much for your great love and grace. Thank you that you allow us to laugh. Thank you that we have the technology that somebody from, uh, you know, a thousand miles away can text my wife and tell us that there's no sound. And Lord, we're just very grateful that you provide and allow these things for us. I pray, Father, as we, we dive into Second Samuel chapter 4 and hopefully 5 tonight, that you would just be with us, that God, that you would bless us, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us and lead us, that you would help us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've made it real far in Second Samuel. Um, when we started chapter 1, we saw David deal with the guy who killed Saul. And then when we got into chapters 2 and 3 last week, we see David anointed as king over Judah. And then we see Abner, son of Ner, setting up Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, as king over the northern tribes. As a result of this, we had a uh, years-long civil war. Then we saw, um, we saw that last week, right? We saw Ishbosheth insult Abner, son of Ner, and he swears, Abner, son of Ner, swears to deliver the whole kingdom to David. You guys are going to be real happy. Abner's going to be dead soon. Um, but he swears he's going to deliver the whole kingdom to David. He goes out and he gathers uh, elders from the various tribes of Israel. He brings them to David and Hebron. They make a covenant together. Abner is sent out to go get more people. And what happened? Well, when Joab finds out, finds out that Abner, son of Ner, had come, he calls him back and he kills him. Now he kills him because Abner, the son of Ner, had killed Joab's brother Asahel in battle. And we left off last week with Abner, son of Ner's burial and David's lament over him. Hopefully, in the not too far future, the Bible will start to stop talking about Abner, the son of Ner. And we'll be able then to move on from this unhealthy obsession I have with the fact that his name is Son of Ner, Son of Ner. But you'll never forget it, right? It'll be 20 years from now and somebody will go, what does Abner mean? Son of Ner. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana, the name of the other Rahab, the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth also was part of Benjamin. Because the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Uh, it's kind of um, an odd statement to put that comment there about Mephibosheth. Um, we're going we're gonna to come back to him a little bit later on, but it's really not in line with what's about to happen. So I'm, uh, I, the only reason I can think that it's really there is so that we know, uh, just spoiler alert, Ishbosheth is about to die. 
um, that when Ishbosheth dies, there is still a family member of Saul alive. Uh, and maybe that's why they put it there. But anyways, verse four, sorry, verse five. Then the sons of Rimon, the Beerothite, Rahab, and Baana set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rahab and Baana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. Then they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. Right? Up to this point, their plan may have not been so bad. Verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Oh, foolish, foolish boys. So these, these two guys, they murder Ishbosheth in his bed. Um, now, it's true here, we see at the beginning that Ishbosheth had lost heart at Abner's death. Because we know the real power behind Ishbosheth was Abner. Abner was the commander of Saul's military forces. And it was because Abner had the loyalty of Saul's military forces that he was able to set Ishbosheth up as king to begin with. When Abner dies, Ishbosheth knows that this was going to make him weak. Right? He was probably a poor leader to begin with. His only example of leadership was his father, right? Not a great example. Um, and, and so he knew this wasn't going to work out for him. However, he did not deserve to be murdered while he was taking a nap. He certainly didn't deserve to be murdered by two men who were supposed to be his servants. And he certainly did not deserve to be murdered under the deceit of these two men who came into the house and, and were basically pretending that they had come to get some wheat. So after beheading Ishbosheth, they bring his head to David. Now, I've alluded to this a little bit, but I'm thinking they should have read the first chapter of 2 Samuel before they did this, because the last people, the last guy who tried this, well, it didn't end well. Now, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son is mentioned here, uh, and how he became lame, as I said uh, earlier, we will come back to him a little bit later. So verse 9. David answered Rahab and Baana his brother, the sons of Rimon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed, therefore shall I not require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So he looks at these guys and he goes, let me tell you a story, right? It wasn't long ago, 
at this point, probably a few years, but still, it wasn't long ago that this Amalekite, he thought he was bringing me good news and told me that he had killed Saul, who was going to die anyway. Now, what do you think I'm going to do to wicked men who murder a righteous man on his bed in his house? So he doesn't just kill them. Cuts off their hands, cuts off their feet, and then hangs their bodies over the pool in Hebron as a message for those who would act so wickedly, right? And he cut off their hands to shed blood uh, because their hands went to shed blood, cut off their feet because their feet ran to shed blood. It was a sign of their wickedness. Hanging them on a tree meant that they were cursed under Jewish law. Now, I actually don't have the reference in front of me. I should have put it in my notes, but I didn't. Uh, But the idea was, uh, the, the law said that if you hung someone on a tree, they were cursed. And Paul applies that to Jesus Christ for us in the book of Galatians, because he was hung on a cross, he took the curse of sin for us. Now, he has Ishbosheth's head buried in Abner, son of Ner's tomb. This was an act of respect and integrity on David's part. Now, I do want to make a comment about one verse, um, because that's really all we've got here from chapter 4. But I want to make a comment about this verse, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. The word redeemed means to ransom, preserve, or deliver, as well as redeem. The word adversity means affliction, anguish, distress, tribulation, and trouble. So you could translate this particular verse in a couple different ways. Like you could say, as the Lord lives who has preserved my life from all distress or has delivered my life from all tribulation, right? It means all of those things. David knew that the Lord was his deliverer. This shows up in a bunch of other places, like Psalm 56, verse 13, which says, For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Then you have Psalm 69, 18, Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. While we go through difficulty, while we're here on earth, right, there's going to be problems, There will be trials. There will be pain. We can trust that God will get us through to the other side. And even if it doesn't seem like we have victory here, we will ultimately have victory in eternity. This is why we trust our souls, our present, and our future entirely to him. And I want to make one other comment about this, and we're going to read a couple verses and then go on. But it's what we think of in redemption, right? God doesn't waste anything. He is very, very efficient. He is not going to waste our hurts. He's not going to waste our failures. Instead, he's going to redeem them. One of the ways that we can think about redemption is, uh, and and I've used this illustration before, but I really like it. Uh, If you're from California, or any other state that it has a widespread recycling program, you'll get yourself a can of soda pop, right? Like a Coke can or something. And on the side, somewhere, it'll say CA Redemption Value. And it's usually like, 
a nickel or something. At least that's what it used to be was a nickel. And it's because you could recycle that and, and get a nickel back for it. Nickel back. <laughs> Don't anybody listen to that band. Anyways. Um, but the whole idea is, right, when you're done with a soda can, what is that worth? Right? Unless, unless you have some firecrackers to put in it and blow it up, it's really not worth much. And then if you do that, it's worth even less. Right? It's, it's not worth anything. It contains soda. Now it's empty. Now it's worthless. But it has a redemption value. And so one of the ways we can think about redemption is to take something that doesn't have value and to restore the value. And when God redeemed us from our sin, that's what he did for us. Because our value to God is intrinsic. We are valuable to God, not because of what we've done. What we've done? I'm sticking with it. We're valuable to God, not because of how we look, or because how smart we are, or, or because of our uh, accomplishments, maybe in business or in academics or whatever it might be. None of those things make us valuable to God. You know what makes us valuable to God? His love. It's just because he loves us. And he demonstrated that love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 So then if you really want to think about value, I'll use one of my other favorite illustrations. Then I promise we'll try to move forward. And this is our value can then be measured not in our personal worth, but in the price that was paid for us. So think about it, right? I've, I've got this little cup I'm holding right here. It's got water in it. I paid 20 bucks for the cup. It was not worth 20 bucks, but that's what they charged, so that's what I paid. At the Starbucks in City Market. I'm not pointing any fingers. No, it's not your fault. <laughs> right? But... I must have thought that the cup was worth 20 bucks because I paid for it, right? Now, you may have something that's absolutely worthless, right? I have a a used tissue here. Now, if some psychotic person walked in and said, I'm going to give you $10 million for that tissue, will you sell it to me? Yeah. Is the tissue worth $10 million? No. But if he's willing to pay $10 million for it, then it becomes worth $10 million. Make sense? Now consider the price that was paid for you and I. The blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price that was paid for you and I. That is how much we are valued. And so while we may go through difficulties, while we may go through affliction, the Lord is our Redeemer. Consider 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And I love this. Oh, but, but you don't know what I'm going through, right? We, we hear that sometimes. You don't, you don't know how difficult this is for me. Well, let's go back to the one who wrote this down. 
Paul wrote, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, depending on when you date 2 Corinthians, it was a little bit later in his ministry, right? I don't, I don't think he was in prison in Rome when he wrote it. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Anybody? Anybody? Um, I'd have to look up the date on the writing. But look at what Paul went through. He was beaten, arrested, whipped, put in stocks, right? He was mocked. He was abandoned by uh, his entire culture. He was abandoned, according to church history, by his family. And what does he call that? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, right? Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Because no matter how bad it gets, and I'm not trying to dismiss anything, right? We all go through stuff. And I'm not saying, well, your stuff isn't all that bad because you've never been whipped and put in stocks. That's not what I'm saying, right? The things you're going through, the difficulties that we all face, right? We don't compare them, right? It's not a, oh, oh, well, you had a bad day. Let me tell you how bad my day was. Or you had a bad family life. Let me tell you about my dad, right? We're not doing that. Right? Because all of that, our hurts and our pain, well, God cares about that. And our heart is precious to him. So I'm not, I'm not saying that for the sake of comparison. I'm just trying to put in perspective what Paul went through. And he wrote this. Because no matter how bad it is, it's still temporary. And even if it's really bad and it ends up being the thing that kills us here... For those of us in Christ, it's still only temporary because this body is not me and I'm going to get a new one and it's going to be able to fly, I hope, and it's going to be able to eat all the chicken fried steak at once without a gout attack, right? Amen. Amen. (laughs) So I do, I think it's important for us to note. Um, that our relationship with God is no different today. If it were not for the redemption offered to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we could not be delivered from anything. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 38 years over all Israel and Judah. So the tribes of Israel came to David, right? They recognized even when Saul was king, you were the guy who was really doing the stuff, right? You led our troops out. You were successful in battle so that you were able to bring them back in. God said that you would be the one 
that would shepherd the people of Israel. So why don't you just come be king over all of us? Now, this was prob- there's probably a few years between chapter 4 and 5. We're not given that exactly. It may have been a month. It may have been two or three years. We don't know. Um, but they come, they make a covenant with David, they anoint him as king over all Israel, and then we're given the timeline, right? Seven and a half years in Hebron, reigning over Judah, and 33 more years, give or take, um, reigning in Jerusalem, which we're going to see, they're going to take Jerusalem in a moment, for a total of 40 years. Now, when David began his reign in Hebron, he was 30 years old, So when he becomes king over all Israel, he's 37, which means he died around 70. So then we can go backwards in that timeline um, because Saul had chased him for about 15 years, 14, 15 years. Um, Some scholars bring it down to 10 years, uh, but it's somewhere around there, 10, 15 years, which means he killed Goliath when he was somewhere around 15 or 16. He went on the run from Saul somewhere around, somewhere between maybe 18 and 20 years old. And then he spent the entirety of his 20s running for his life. It's just something to consider that even though that was the case, God came through with his promise. He preserved David. He kept him alive. Made him king over Judah. And here, the promise finally fulfilled that he is king over all Israel. Now, verse 6. I like verse 6 through 16. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now, real, real quick, and I I just... um, At this point in time, they have been in the land. uh, you got to be talking close to 500 years now, right? Because the time of the judges, depending on who you talk about, um, was between three and four hundred years, right? And then you had the time of Eli, and then the time of Samuel, and then the time of Saul, and the time of David. So we're somewhere, give or take, probably between four and five hundred years. The Israelites, all the way back in the book of Joshua, were commanded to take Jerusalem and to destroy the Jebusites and throw them out of the land. But they're still there, still in Jerusalem. So they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around it from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. So we're going to stop there for a second. So the Jebulites in Jerusalem, they insult him. They say, you know what? You want to try to take it? Yeah, come on. But we're, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take all the people who can't walk. We're going to take all the people who are missing limbs. We're going to take all the people who are blind and we're going to put them on the city wall to defend it. And and even then you're not going to be able to get in. David is made angry by this. And he says, all right, we're going to take it. And his plan is very simple. 
right? Climb up the water shaft. Now, this was used to bring water into the city during the time of the siege. Hezekiah later made a tunnel to bring water into the city during the time of the siege. First Chronicles chapter 11 tells us that it was Joab who climbed up this water shaft, which would have allowed him and whoever went with him to get into the city and then go open the gates so that they could take the city. Now, Jerusalem was very easy to defend. On one side of Jerusalem, you had, well, you had mountains surrounding Jerusalem. On one side, you had the Kidron Valley. On the other side, you had the Valley of Gehenna. And there was only one way to actually attack Jerusalem. And they had a very well-built wall that made this difficult. And because they didn't have to worry about attacks coming from multiple directions, it was a really easy city to defend. So David... Well, he comes up with a great plan. I have a slide to show you this. So first slide, baby. So this will show you the, the water system of Jerusalem um, around the time of David. It was rather complex. Now, there are some who say that David climbed up what is known as, or not David, that Joab and his men climbed up what is known as the Warren Shaft. Uh, and that's depicted on there somewhere. Well, that's a picture of it. Go back. Uh, but it's, we will, but it's pictured on there somewhere. But the argument is it didn't have to be the Warren shaft because Jerusalem had a complex water system. They, they, they basically had a way to get clean water into the city and that when it rained or when they needed to dispose of something, they could get it out of the city, right? The Jebusites were, were pretty decent engineers as it were. It did become their undoing because Somehow, Joab got in. Now, the next one is a picture of the Warren shaft. And a lot of people think this was the shaft they climbed up. Um, there's some people who think it was some, may have been something else, and it may have been, but it was at least a shaft that was something like this. Now, imagine getting through there, right? You would be limited on the amount of armor you could take, right? You couldn't take a really big shield. Wouldn't fit. You could take a sword, but it'd be clanking the whole way up, right? When you got near the top, you would have to draw that sword because I guarantee somebody was waiting. And they got up. They got through whatever defenses were waiting for them at the top. They got to the gate and got it open. Now, we know Joab is a sketchy character. We already know that. But that took some guts, Right? He, he, the Lord was with them for sure. God wanted them to have the city of Jerusalem. But, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll climb up the, the skinny little tunnel and whack off the heads of the people at the top of the tunnel and go open the door. Who's going to do that? Job says, I will. And he actually becomes then, um, and we get a little more detail, like I said, in, in First Chronicles chapter 11, but he then becomes the captain, as it were, over David's military forces. But he was captain over David's military forces. It would appear that when Joab killed Abner, David stripped him of that position. But here, David makes a promise. Joab does the thing. And so David has to come through on his promise and makes him the head of his military again. Verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, 
and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives, oh, David, from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, we'll get to, you know, everybody knows where Solomon came from, right? But then we have Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Eliphalet. I'm thinking David didn't like all these kids. Um, long story short, uh, this uh, alliance with Hiram, the king of Tyre, lasts um, through Solomon's reign and, and we see Hiram's descendants from time to time having a continuing alliance with the various kings of Judah and Israel uh, as time goes on. But he finds out David became king, and he says he sends him all the materials and all the workmen to build David a house. And then David takes a bunch more women and has a bunch more kids. And that gets us to verse 17. Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, or Rephaim, however you want to pronounce it. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went up to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baal-perazim, which literally means breakthrough. Um, and they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord and said, And he said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for the Lord will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. So David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer, or Gezer. So the Philistines find out David's king, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We know the trouble that David's caused. We're going to go deal with this right now. So they come out, and David... Right, We finally see David really being the man he's supposed to be. All right, Lord, the Philistines have come out. What do I do? And God says, well, go get him. So he goes up and he defeats them the first time. Then they carry away their idols, and it's likely that they burned them in accordance with the command in Deuteronomy 7. So then the Philistines come up again. Right, oh, They got us once, they won't get us again. And David said, shall I go up? And because and, they gathered at the same place. The Philistines did, and God said, no, go around back. And when you hear the marching in the top of the mulberry trees, then advance, and then you will defeat them. Now, I don't know what that means, right? There's a lot of people that have argued about it. Well, maybe God sent a wind to, to shake the trees. Maybe God sent an angelic host that as they moved through the trees, the trees rustled. I don't know. I kind of think it's that one, but that's just me. Whatever the case, God gave him a sign. The sign took place and they defeated them again. And what I think is so cool about this is that God gave him victory in two different ways. And we see this throughout scripture. 
If you pay attention as you read through the Bible, uh, as you read through the Gospels, right? God sometimes does something the same way twice, but not always. Quite often, God will actually do the same thing in a very different way, right? Just consider this battle compared to um, uh, Gideon. How did God deliver Gideon or deliver the, the uh, uh, I think it was the Moabites to Gideon, right? Shout, break some clay jars that have candles in them and God confused the enemy and they ran. I was reading um, this morning, or the other day, uh, um, I was reading um, in 2 Kings and the, the city was sieged and they were going through a famine. And if you remember, right, the lepers go out. They're like, we're going to die. We might as well go out and surrender. If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. Maybe they won't kill us and they'll give us a meal. But they go out there and the entire camp is empty. Because God caused confusion and the people killed each other and ran. Then you have another instance where God sent an angel to wipe out 185,000 of the enemy in one night. Right? Then you have another time when, when God simply surrounds the army with an angelic host, strikes the, the, the military force blind, and Elisha takes him for a walk. I mean, there's all these different ways. Get into the New Testament. How did Jesus heal people? Did he ever do it the same time every way? Did he do it the same way every time? I said that wrong. Right? No. Right? Look at the ways. I just love the various ways that he, he healed people who were blind. One guy, he just touches him and he heals him of his blindness. Another guy, he spits in his face. Another guy, he spits in the dirt makes mud, and then rubs the spit dirt on the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash in a pool. Why? Because it doesn't matter how he does it. Right? It doesn't matter how he does it. It's the fact that he does it. And we should be very careful to not put God in a box and not think, well, he can only do it this way because that's how he did it before. Right? This is where we get division in the church. We get legalism. 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us there's diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There's diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Right? We, we don't limit God. We don't assume that because he did it one way in one place, that he'll do it the same way in a different place. And the way we avoid this is to be led by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. And then we get out of his way so he can do his work in and through our lives and our church. Period. I love that. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick personal story. I'll tell you two quick personal stories to illustrate that, and then, then we'll be done. Personal story number one is, well, actually, they're both bad. Personal story number one is I, I, try, I had somebody, um, I was listening to a message, and they were talking about how there was a school, a school of healing, a school of Christian healing. And, and don't get me wrong, I, still, I believe God can heal. I have no problem with that. I've seen him do it. We trust him to do it. Um, he might not always do it the way we think he should, but we just talked about that. So we have to be okay with that. But what they talked about at this school for healing was the way you would lay hands on a person for a specific illness. 
dead serious, right? So, so if, they've got, if they've got this kind of headache, you, you lay your hands on this part of the head. And if they've got that kind of headache, you lay your hands, if they've got a stomach ache, and it wasn't just where, but it was how. And they had various hand positions and sometimes all the fingers and sometimes it would be the palms. And, and I'm going, that's insanity. <laughs> what do we see in scripture? Because what we see in scripture is, you know, Lord, my, my, my servant is about to die. I'll come to your house. You don't have to do that. All you got to do is say a word and my servant will be healed. Okay. He says the word, the servant's healed. Did he lay his hands on? Did he touch? Did he even see him? Didn't touch him. Didn't even go in the house. Didn't even take the walk over there. My little daughter is vexed. Go home. She's fine. Goes home. Guess what? She's fine. You got another. My son is at the point of death. Eh. Be all right. What about Jairus? My daughter's dead. No biggie. Let's go talk to that. Let's go take care of that. Right? And every time, just about every time, he does it differently. And that, that's just so valuable for us to understand. Second bad story. And this bad story was the first time I tried to plant a church. Here was my issue. I grew up in Southern California. I was part of Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And Calvary Chapel is very special in Southern California. Right? If you take the dove, everybody's seen the dove that's the Calvary Chapel dove. You take that dove, you put it on a building, you're going to have a couple hundred people very, very quickly. It's just the way it happens. Everybody in Southern California knows who Calvary Chapel is. Everybody in Southern California knows, oh, well, great, Calvary Chapel. Now I don't have to drive over to that one. I can go to this one. I thought that was universal. (laughs) Went to North Dakota. We got our first building. Put the dove on the sign. Nobody showed up. Okay, well, I take that back. Two or three people showed up. But not a lot of people showed up. And, and it's because I made a huge mistake of thinking that what God was doing in Calvary Chapel in California is what he would do if we planted a church in North Dakota. What I didn't realize is that the people in North Dakota had no idea. Well, not, not no idea, but very few of them knew what Calvary Chapel was. Very few of them, and, and those that did really didn't care, right? That, that this wasn't their thing. And so the Lord had to teach me Right? It's been one of the most interesting things about being here in Gunnison because the culture of Gunnison is very different than any place that I've been, any other place that I've been. It's, it's just very, very different. I served churches in Oklahoma where it didn't matter who you talked to, they were a Christian. Now, you know as well as I do that they weren't, but if you asked them, they would tell you they were. Oh, you know, I'd love to have, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I got baptized. I mean, my, my parents still go to the Baptist church they went to, you know, all, my whole life. Okay, but do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. That's not what I asked, <laughs> right? It's, just, it's a different question. But everybody in Oklahoma, it didn't matter who you asked, very few people would come back and go, oh, I don't believe that, because that wasn't the culture of Oklahoma. It wasn't the culture of North Dakota either. Most people up there would have some kind of acknowledgement of a belief in God. Um, and then I moved to Gunnison. And there's some people here, no offense, they believe some wacky stuff. Some really wacky stuff. And sharing the gospel with them is very, very different because they, most of the people around here do not have 
what we might call a church background. Do you believe in God? Well, to them, well, sure, I believe in the spirit of the trees. That's their God. No, that's not who I was talking about. Right? Oh, sure. You know, I meet God when I walk outside barefoot in the snow. You meet hypothermia when you walk outside barefoot in the snow. <laughs> right? But, but it's, just, it's just a different culture here. So you have to start in a different place. Right? You can't assume. Anyways, that, that's the point I was making. And what I think is very cool is that we see God doing a work here. And he is not doing it the way I thought he would. And that's so cool. And I'm so excited about it. So we just have to get out of his way. Next week, we're going to see David bring the ark into Jerusalem. Very, very cool chapter. Um, If we have time, we may get to God's covenant with David, with the promise of the Messiah in chapter 7. I don't know. We'll see how far we get. But until then, let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your great grace for each of us. We thank you, Lord, that we cannot put you in a box. And there's no reason to. We just need to get out of your way and watch you part the seas before us. Father, I pray that you would give us a constant grace to remind us that we are loved by you and that our value to you has nothing to do with what we do, but it has everything to do with what you've done for us. I pray, God, for the rest of our week that you would bless us and watch over us and keep us. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.